So we're still continuing uh, in our thoughts on corporate worship. This is just part two, and uh, and so I, I want to uh, I want to begin uh, by saying that uh, when we begin to think about corporate worship and what corporate worship should look like, or what things we should do to ensure the togetherness and mutual edification and love during corporate worship that uh, I talked about last week, it is foundational that we understand the who of worship. Before we understand or think about the how of worship, we need to think about the who or think about who we are worshiping. We need to understand that the same God we are gathered to worship is the one who has gathered us for that purpose. Or you could say it, you could say it the other way around. The one, the God who has gathered us to worship Him is the God who is worthy of worship. He is the object of our worship. We are not gathered by one and then we worship another. We are gathered by God to worship God. Right? And so... I think that it doesn't take a lot of convincing for Christians to agree that God's people should worship God, right? And I would say that it doesn't take any more convincing than that, that God's people should worship God and worship God alone, only worship God. Uh, As a matter of fact, the first and second of the Ten Commandments deal with directly with that idea. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 3 through 5. And you know this, you'll recognize it at least when I begin to read it. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So we see the idea immediately in God's people gathered, worshiping God alone. No idols, only worshiping Him. And and the Old Testament and New Testament is replete with those ideas. We can look at Psalm 29, 1 through 2. And bear with uh, me as I flip through the Scriptures and uh, also probably bear with uh, the media shout person, although they'll probably do do better than me in finding uh, these Scriptures. But Psalm 29... Verses 1 and 2, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, many of you probably recognize that. Verses uh, 1 through 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, 
With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, in the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus actually quotes the uh, Exodus chapter 20. In verse 10, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And then finally, and this is just a uh, smattering (laughs) of uh, the passages of Scripture that deal with worshiping the Lord and worshiping Him alone, and the fact that He is exceedingly worthy of worship. Verses 8 through 11. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God is the object of worship. And so the point then is that since God is the object of worship, He gets to determine how we worship. Further, since God is not only the object of our worship, but has also gathered us for that purpose, He again is the one who determines how we worship. And He has revealed that to us in His will. Let's look back at Exodus chapter 20. And then let's look at verse 1 and 2 just prior to those first two commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So just prior to 23 and 4, just prior to laying out that He alone is to be worshipped and how He should be worshipped, God says, I am the one who has redeemed you, or I am the one that has gathered you to Myself. I am the one that has redeemed you. It is then with this foundation that God is the one that has gathered them or redeemed them that God proceeds to tell His people how they should relate to Him. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image of any likeness or anything that is in the heavens above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And think about this. God could have said anything. He was the one, He's the object of their worship, and He's the one that has redeemed them for the praise of His glory. He could have said anything. He could have said, worship me and Baal, because Baal is pretty awesome. Just make sure you worship me more. Or He could have said, worship the angels and the elders around my throne, because they are higher beings than you, since they are not fallen. Or He could have said, worship me primarily, But you may also worship the Egyptian gods 
Since that's something you're familiar with, that's something that you were used to seeing happen in Egypt. And if he said any of those things, that is how worship would be acceptable to him. And we wouldn't know otherwise. You understand? God is the one that is the object of our worship. He is the one that has gathered us and commanded us to worship. So he gets to determine how we worship. The reason that we worship God alone and no other God is because God told us to. God told us how we should worship Him, and it is based on the fact that He is the object and He is the gatherer. Worship only me. So the point is that God is the one who determines who we worship and how we worship, and He has spoken those things to us. Merker succinctly says, God hasn't left it up to us to decide what acts of gathered worship are valid. He has revealed His will to us in His Word. We worship according to His design and intent. So I don't mean to belabor, yes I do, the point. But the point is, since God is the one who gathers His people for His glory, and since He commands them to worship Him as the object of their worship, He has the right to command those people how they should worship Him, and He has done just that in His Word. The reformers referred to this idea as the regulative principle of worship. Ligon Duncan is in Does God Care How We Worship, the book he wrote, says the regulative principle is an extension of the reformational axiom of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. As the Bible is the final authority in faith and life, so it is the final authority in how we corporately worship. The 1689, Second London, I know that uh, Lig is a, a presby, so we might be like, well, come on now. But the 1689, Second London Baptist Confession and the Philadelphia Baptist Confession both say the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visual representations, which that would have been immediately against the Roman church, or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scriptures. And this statement is consistent with all the reformational creeds and confessions, like the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, I recognize um, uh, uh, initially that the phrase, regulative principle, sounds a little stuffy right? And restricting. But, but that could not be further from the truth. Because here's the facts. Scripture gives plenty of instruction in what may be and what must be done in corporate worship. And that can and does take shape in a multitude of ways that can be seen in the high church activities of a conservative Presbyterian church up north or a vibrant and lively, predominantly African-American church in the South. Further, the regulative principle frees the corporate worship to be corporate worship in all its God-exalting, church-edifying beauty. Let me illustrate. Think of a, a football game. It is not the freedom of the game to do whatsoever you will that defines the integrity of the game. It is the regulation that defines the integrity of the game, right? 
It is the regulations that free the players to compete and to preserve the integrity of the game as a football game. A baseball batter can't just bring a bat and start wailing on the players, although some of y'all were hoping that that was what would happen in Kentucky, with Kentucky in the swamp, with Kentucky. Uh, but uh, think you can't, so a baseball player can't say, oh, I heard there's hitting in baseball, so let me bring a bat and start whacking everybody. No, there's, there's regulations that preserve the integrity of the football game. A, a base, a, a same could be said with a pitcher. You can't just throw in a baseball because he heard there was throwing a ball in football, right? Similarly, the integrity and beauty of corporate worship is maintained when we worship God the way God prescribes in his word. It does not stifle us. It liberates us to worship God in the way we know or in the way that we are certain God longs to be worshipped. So what does God prescribe in his word? That kind of begs the question. What are those elements or parts of corporate worship that must be present to ensure that corporate worship is actually corporate worship and accomplishes the intent of glorifying God and edifying the church? And there are numerous ways to summarize those essential elements in corporate worship. And these things have been argued throughout history. But the summary that I have found most helpful probably for its simplicity, and hopefully it will be helpful to you, is found in the motto, what we do in corporate worship is we read the word, sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, and see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in the time remaining, I will deal with the first three of these And then we'll look at the last two next week as we conclude this series. So first, in corporate worship, to ensure that we worship the Lord the way the Lord is pleased with us to worship, we read the Word. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 4. And verse... 13, 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, this is Paul talking to Timothy, y'all probably knew that. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, note how the public reading of Scripture is expressly commanded by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. You look back at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So we're reminded that Paul is writing Timothy because he wants him to know how he should conduct himself in the church. And that's the whole point of 1 Timothy. And one of the ways that Timothy is to conduct himself in the church is to devote himself to the reading of Scripture in the public setting of corporate worship. 
And now we read and read the scripture and expound the scripture, and we'll get to that next week during the preaching. But what Paul is commanding here is something different. He is commanding not exposition, but public reading. There's no exposition in the public reading of scripture. It is simply the voice of God speaking to the people of God through his word. Note the element. Note that the element of reading the word is commanded, but Paul doesn't command when in the corporate gathering to publicly read the word. So the command is do read the word, but the liberty is you can read it before or after or during or whenever, whatever seems prudent. For instance, in in our worship, We devote time to the public reading of Scripture when we hear the voice of God call us to worship through His Word. That reminds us at the beginning of each corporate worship time that we didn't assemble ourselves, that God has assembled us. And so because God is the one that has assembled us, He is the one that calls us to worship Him. It reminds us that God is God and He gets to determine how He is. He is the one that has gathered us and gets to determine how we worship him. And so, so we do that. Um, uh, we devote that time in, in uh, the call to worship, but we also devote time to the public reading of Scripture when Brian reads Scripture just prior to his praying. Brian reads Scripture. He makes no comment. He just simply reads the Scripture and then begins to pray. That is devoting corporate worship time to public reading. Further, we often read Scripture publicly when we read the sermon text together. And so it's a little bit detached from the exposition of the sermon as we we read it together. And finally, another place we at least give nod to this part or element of corporate worship is when we read summations of Scripture uh, or scriptural truth like our Q&A time. Or when we read an ancient creed together, like the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, we are at least giving a nod to devoting time to the public reading of Scripture. And so I think you can already see the direct command aspect of the regulative principle. And at the same time, you can see that there are a number of ways that a church may obey that command. And so with that said, it's probably as good a time as any right now uh, just to, to interject that's that following the regulative principle is about the posture of our hearts toward the Word of God. It's more about that than it is following a strict set of rules. Merker, again, he makes this helpful comment in this line of thought. The regulative principle is a posture regarding the essential acts or elements of corporate worship. It is a way of saying that when we consider the main strokes of what we do when the church gathers, our basic instinct should be to lead the gathered body to do only what the Scripture commands. And so we read the Word. The Word of God tells us to do so, but it doesn't necessarily tell us how, and so our hearts are just bowed to the fact that the Word of God instructs us in worship. Second, we sing the Word. We sing the Word. We are commanded in Scripture to sing the Word of God in corporate worship. And there are several instances of the people of God singing in the gathered assembly in the Old Testament. Matthew notes that the disciples sang a hymn together while they were gathered together at 
the Lord's, at the Last Supper, just after the institution of the Lord's Supper, and just prior to making their way to the Mount of Olives. And this is in Matthew chapter 26. So God's people are gathered, and they are singing a psalm. However, the clearest command for God's gathered people to sing when they are gathered comes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, and its sister text in Colossians 3, 16. Let's look at Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the negative command here is don't be drunk because that's a vile thing to do. But the positive command is to be filled with the Spirit. And so the outflow of the fullness of the Spirit then reveals itself in addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. The fullness of the Spirit also brings a thankful heart, and it brings a mutual submission to one another. As we, as I spoke last week, sing and mutually edify one another. And note that they are addressing one another in song, while also singing unto the Lord. So address one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, in your heart to the Lord. And this actually, I think, captures the essence of corporate worship perfectly. You may ask the question, so when we sing, are we singing to God or are we singing to one another? And my answer to that question would be yes. We are doing both. And we need to be mindful of that truth. We need to be mindful that as we are singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, we are also teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we are teaching and admonishing one another. And, and I'm telling you, this may be my favorite point, because it just rejoices my heart when this happens. For instance, today, I don't mean to point, I, I pick on you a lot, don't I, Chuck? But it's probably because you sit right, in, right behind me. But today, you know, part of the, uh, one of the songs, I can't, I can't remember which one it was. It was a little low for me and Chuck. We was trying to, we was trying to get down in the, in the bassy range to, to hit those notes. And, and that's what we were doing. And I could hear Chuck in the back doing it. And it, I got chill bumps thinking about it right now because here's a man that says, you know what? I sing a little higher than that, but the, the scripture doesn't say sing as long as it's in your favorite key. It says sing. And so he sings. And I could hear him. I could just imagine him in his, in his you know, and I, as a matter of fact, I was even doing it myself. You know, I could just imagine him, you know, doing what we do to try to hit those low notes. And it rejoices my heart. It ministers to me. It makes me so glad that I'm a part of a church that worships corporately the way God commands them to worship. Right? Because I, he, while he is singing and making melody in his heart to the Lord, you know what he's also doing? 
He's addressing me and he's admonishing me and he's teaching me, hey, buddy, the song don't have to be just like you like it for you to sing it. Listen to me. I'm singing it. You ought to sing it, right? Or he may be addressing me, as I said last week. Man, I, uh, the, uh, uh, it was rough this week, but the Lord is good. And I'm going to sing to the Lord because how can I keep from singing? And it ministers to my heart. So we're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And we are also addressing one another. That's the way corporate worship works. I get excited about that. (laughs) The fullness of the Spirit causes us to sing to the Lord and to sing to one another. And at the same time, we are not just singing willy-nilly, are we? Or Willie Nelson. My heart, I mean, you know, if we were outside and Chuck wanted to sing me a Willie Nelson song, I might be down with that. But since we're in the, in the corporate worship, I don't need to hear blue eyes crying in the rain. Right? I need to hear the goodness of God coming from my brother and sister's mouth. That's teaching me and admonishing me. The word of God. We are singing the word. Note Paul commands the people to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other. We can flip over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul uses similar phraseology to that of Ephesians 5, doesn't it? Colossians and Ephesians are very similar in their style. But here this time, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I think that this at least emphasizes the intimate connection between the word of God and the spirit of God. You cannot disconnect the two. The ministry of the Word is the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of the Word. When you conflate those two, you're going down a dangerous path. You cannot disconnect those two. But it also, it also says something about the songs. If the Word of Christ will dwell richly in the Colossian church through singing... It is only logical to conclude that the words of Christ dwell richly in the songs they sing. As a matter of fact, the largest book of the Bible is a song book. It's the book of Psalms. As a matter of fact, there are what I would consider faithful traditions that exclusively sing the book of Psalms to ensure that they are actually singing the words of God. But I'm not convinced that, that uh, the hymns and spiritual songs, I'm not convinced that the songs that we sing should be exclusively psalms. But I am convinced that the hymns and spiritual songs we sing should be saturated with the Word of God, with biblical truth. They should te- teach the deep things of God. They should teach the great things of God, the frightening things of God. The blessings of God and so on, much like the Psalms do. And that is why here at Church on the Way, we make an honest attempt at assuring the songs are filled with biblical truths. There are popular songs that we gladly embrace and sing because they are faithful 
and full of God's Word. On the other hand, there are songs that we reject because they are not full of God's Word. Like blue eyes crying in the rain. They might be okay to listen to while you're on your way to work. But they are not okay for corporate worship. Where the Word of Christ is to dwell richly as we teach and admonish one another by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Further, we try to arrange the songs in such a way as to declare the central message of God's Word, the gospel. An honest attempt is made month by month to include songs that capture the God, man, Christ response summary of the gospel that I often speak of. And most of the time, in that order, to the degree that is possible or given my, my limited brain. Finally, to the degree possible, we want, things, we want the songs to connect to the major themes of the text that day. So when you hear the truth of God's word proclaimed in the preaching, that it's not the first time you've heard it that day. Our hearts have already been prepared for that truth as we have sung them to God and one another. There is a centrality of the word of God that I think that you're already picking up here. We want to obey God's prescription for corporate worship as we sing the word. And then finally, for this sermon, we pray the word. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made... I'm sorry, I'm reading verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So it commands us that prayers should be made for all people without anger or quarreling or without the divisiveness that we saw in the Corinthian church last week. This command, like public reading of Scripture, seems to be in connection with 1 Timothy 3.15 that says, Timothy, I'm telling you how you ought to obey in the house of the Lord. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because Matthew 21.13, Jesus says, It is written, He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The Lord's house is a house of prayer. You'll have to forgive me, and I do this all the time in, with the uh, worship team, but this is, this is my only point of reference, okay? But one of the greatest compliments we felt like we received at Covenant was when guests would comment on the amount of time we spent in prayer in our corporate gatherings. They would say things like, wow, you guys pray a lot here. And the elders, I, we would be giving each other mental high fives and be like. <laughs> and these folks came and encountered a house of prayer. Which, as I've already mentioned, is one of the ways Jesus describes his church. But again, we are not just praying whatever comes to mind. Listen, I promised that I wrote this sermon prior to yesterday. I just, let me make a disclaimer. So we're not just praying whatever comes to mind. 
we're not praying that everyone in the church will suddenly get rich. And we're not praying that the Gators will win the national championship. Although I know some of y'all probably be praying that in private. Let this year be the year, Lord. Oh, we're not just praying willy-nilly, whatever comes to mind, right? No, our prayers are informed by Scripture. We pray for maturity. We pray for wisdom. We pray for unity. We pray for leaders and rulers. We pray for the suffering and persecuted. We confess our sins and our sinfulness. Our prayers are informed by Scripture and infused by Scripture and are sometimes simply praying Scripture. And we see this in our times of corporate worship. When Brian, what? What does he do? He prays. Notice, but notice how connected next time you hear Brian pray, and, I, and tomorrow, this morning was a perfect example of it. Um, notice how connected to Scripture Brian's prayers are. And let me interject this. Also notice that because his prayers are about what God desires instead of what we may desire, notice the joy and the passion that comes forth. I mean, he almost started crying today, right? It wasn't just this cold, dead, uh, let's see, okay, we, read, we did this scripture, now let's pray something about this scripture. No, it's not like that at all. Because the truth of God's word excites something in our hearts, does it not? As a matter of fact, it excites the right things in our hearts. Sometimes when the Gators aren't winning the national championship, it excites the wrong thing in our heart, doesn't it? But when we are praying Scripture or Scripture-infused prayers, something stirs within our soul. You know what that is? That's the Spirit of God bearing witness with the truth. You can tell that Brian thinks about that when he's praying. Praying the Word of God. Praying the Word is also accomplished in our context when we offer the prayer at the end of our sermons. This is is not just something we throw in there to make a break between the sermon and the announcements. As a matter of fact, I am happy to call that a, a pastoral prayer. We are praying that the Word of God that you have just heard will heal you where you're wounded. Correct you where you are in error. Edify you. Rebuke you in your sin. And that the Spirit would give you wisdom concerning how to apply the truth you just heard in the preaching. We do this, of course, because we desire your best spiritual interest, of course. But the way that we know that this is in, is aligned with your best spiritual interest is because God told us to do it. So we do it because the Word of God tells us to. We make prayer and supplication for all of God's people because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And we know for certain that the God who is working for your good has included praying as a means to that end. And so many of you today, you may be surprised to discover that you are attending a church that follows the regulative principle. But when you leave the corporate gathering, having been truly edified, spiritually edified, 
And having truly edified others and the whole church, it's not by accident. We didn't trip into it. It's not just because the preaching was so great and Dale Doobie doing some good preaching. Right? It's, and it's, it's, not, it's not because the music was just right and we've got some great musicians. Or that everything was just to your liking, although there are times I'm certain that you like it. No, when we leave spiritually edified, truly edified, it is because the Word of God was at the forefront. It is because the Word of God was consulted so we could find out how the one who gathers us and the one to whom we direct our worship is glorified and pleased with what we do when we gather. And again, the God who has said that He works everything for our good ensures the means to that end. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. You are who you are. You've created us. You are sovereign creator. You could be anything. And we would do, we, our allegiance would be due you simply because of who we are. And not only have you created us, Lord, but we rebelled against you and you redeemed us. You gathered us. And for our own benefit and mutual edification and for your own glory, you gather us often, regularly. And again, God, because you are good in redeeming us, in gathering us, in gathering us often, you have also instructed us what to do when we gather. You've spoken to us. You have instructed us because you are good. And so we're not left to our own devices to decide how you might best be pleased. But rather, Lord, you have given us your word so that we might please you in our worship. You have revealed yourself. You have revealed the way that you desire to be worshipped. And so we can be sure that when we consult your word and make your word the center of our worship, Lord, that you are pleased. And what liberty and what grace and what confidence, what a settling of our anxious hearts to know that we can please you. We can please you. Because we hear your voice. But we fail. And your goodness is yet revealed to us again. When we fail, you are gracious. You reach to us. You restore us. You correct us. You teach us. You are patient with us. You place us again on the right track. And we have been assured in your word, God, that you will do that over and over again. We have been assured by our own experience, Lord, that you do that over and over again. 
And so we pray again, Lord, that by your grace, by the empowering of your spirit, by the instruction of your word of God, help us to please you. Help us to do the things that please you. Help us to say the things that please you. Help us to sing the things that please you. Because, Lord, there is no higher honor for man than that we, sinful yet redeemed creatures, could bring you glory. That you would be glorified through us. I pray that that happens today. I pray that that has happened today. And I pray with assurance because I'm quite sure it has. But I pray, Lord, that it will continue to happen as we seek to be faithful followers of your word. And we don't pray this because we think you owe us something. And we don't pray this because we think we're good. We pray this because your son has made a way for us to do so. And so it is not in our name but it is in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church says, amen. amen.